among us. I am your guide, Derek Hayes. Well, it's official. Fall is here. I can tell you it's about 50 degrees, a little bit rainy, and the leaves are starting to change colors here. I can't tell you how excited I am about all that. And I have a great show lined up for you guys this evening, but before we get started, I have to do this. Today is Addie Lloyd's birthday, and for those of you that don't know who Addie is, She is the awesome Facebook moderator over at the group page. I want each and every one of you to go follow the page and then take the time out to wish Addie a happy birthday. Let's blow this page up. I want to thank Addie and Warren while I'm at it for all their hard work and dedication for the show. I know I say it every week, but that's how much it means to me. So happy birthday, Addie. I hope it's a great one. As I said, I have one heck of a show lined up for you guys this evening. And you know me, I like to get right into it. So tonight's first call comes to us from a distant land. The following is Stuart's call from England. Hi, Monsters Among Us. It's Stuart here calling all the way from Oxford in England. My story actually comes to you through my father, who recounted his creepy experiences to me when he was a child. He said this, I must have been about 10 or 11 years old when I had the weirdest experiences. In 1957, my mother and I were living with a close friend who lived in a beautiful Tudor house in the middle of the New Forest in the south of England. Reputedly, this had been lived in for a while by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, famous amongst other things for having written Sherlock Holmes stories. We'd been told that his ghost was actually a frequent visitor. One summer's afternoon, I and one of our host sons were playing in the garden. Everyone else was out, that was for sure. All of a sudden, we heard very loud noises coming from the playroom. We went upstairs to investigate. As we got nearer the doors, the volume increased. It sounded as if someone was chucking stuff around and pulling books off the shelves. When we opened the door, however, it was completely silent and not a thing was out of place. But what really struck us was the temperature in the room. It was utterly freezing. We scuffled downstairs pretty quickly and incredibly frightened. Another day from the same room, again, when everyone was out, we heard what sounded like little children playing with a toy train in the room. Again, we approached the room, still hearing what sounded like kids having a great time, only to open the door and again be met with a silent and still room that was bitterly cold. I remember it this vividly as if it was yesterday. On another occasion, my mother came out of her bedroom and saw, at the end of a very long landing, 
figure dressed in old-fashioned clothes. She also noticed that it seemed to be floating above the ground by a few inches. Don't worry, she was told. That's Sir Arthur searching for his diary. Now, as I wasn't there, I can't give you much more detail. Um, but this comes directly from my father, who's an avid skeptic of paranormal activity. He, however, swears blind that the house was haunted and that it had the experiences were real, with no real logical explanation. I, in fact, visited the house in the late 90s and can attest to its spooky feeling, based on how old it was, but I never actually saw anything myself. I'd love to know what you think of the story and whether anyone else who listened has had any similar experiences or even visited this house in the New Forest. As always, keep up the great work of this podcast and all the very best from the UK. Thank you, Stuart, for calling in long distance. Now, the first thing I will note is that if anyone else out there happens to have a third or secondhand story, don't hesitate to call that story in. Some of our best tales to date have been secondhand stories. Just be sure to get as many details as possible. Now for the activity itself. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was a noted spiritualist. I believe, now this is going unresearched, I believe he lost his son at an early age, and that caused him to delve deep into the spiritualist movement of the time in an attempt to reach his deceased son. So perhaps there is some sort of link to the house. Is it possible that Doyle himself performed seances in the home? Is this enough to build that connection? Of course this is all speculative, but it's awfully fun to think about. Thank you again, Stuart, for taking the time to share the call. Our next call comes to us from the state of Georgia. The following is Matt's call. Uh, hi, yeah, my name's Matt from Atlanta. Um, I've always really been interested in paranormal stuff, uh, but never really experienced anything until I moved to um, southeastern Tennessee. It's pretty much on the tri-state area of northeast Georgia, southeast Tennessee, and southwest North Carolina. Um, there's an area out there called Copper Hill that's known for having lights in the sky. Um, you know, UFOs, whether it be alien or government, yet to be seen. But um, I know a lot of, uh, of people that really don't deal with nonsense too much, and they've told me stories of crazy stuff they've seen. And I myself have seen stuff. Now, I've always been interested in paranormal, but I've always tried to be as, as skeptic as possible. But um, I'm going to share three quick stories that I experienced in my time. Um, the first being... Uh, one time I was hiking uh, and camping over a spot called Jacks River Falls in north northeast Georgia. It's way out in the middle of nowhere. Um, it's an hour and a half drive and then a two to three hour hike to get out there. So it's really out there. A really beautiful spot. You can see all the stars. Uh, me and a friend of, of mine were sitting on a rock checking out the sky uh, for a few hours and just, you know, enjoying nature. And uh, all of a sudden, we saw what looked like uh, three satellites uh, moving in uh, in tandem with each other. Uh, and then suddenly, the one on the top and the one on the bottom started zigzagging. And then it's for probably about five, ten seconds. And then both shot off. Uh, and during this time, I, I hadn't said anything, but my friend had mentioned with, uh, oh, are you seeing this? And then uh, after they shot off, the the middle one kept going straight 
and then about two or three seconds later did the same thing. Now, I've done a bunch of research into what I saw, um, and I've seen some explanations, but really nothing to the level to explain exactly what I saw. Um, so that was pretty uh, fun to see. Uh, the second being, um, me and my friends went out and hi- did a midnight hike up, up to the top of a mountain uh, where there's something called an amphitheater. And basically, you can see out for miles and miles on top of this mountain down into the valley. Uh, and right across from the amphitheater, after we've been out there for like 15, 20 minutes, we saw a green light. Now, I know that a uh, green light has been associated with drones, but this thing was way too large to be a drone. They think something about the size of a helicopter, at least. And a green light shining way far away, at least five and a half or five to ten miles away uh, across this valley. And it's right above the mountain line, and it's coming straight at us. So for the first, you know, five, ten minutes when we see that, like, oh, what is that? Oh, it's a helicopter, you know, not really too worried about it. And it keeps coming at us slowly, slowly, slowly. This is over the course of about 30, 45 minutes uh, until, you know, we start, or the girls kind of get a little scared. I'm honestly kind of scared because you're like, what is this light coming straight at us? So eventually it just right above us. Uh, and at that point, it completely disappears from view. It doesn't keep moving. As soon as it goes above us, it disappears. Um, we didn't have any time loss or anything like that, so don't think we were abducted or anything insane like that, but just a very strange uh, light in the sky that I saw. Uh, the third, I was uh, at a wedding party in the mountains with, uh, with a bunch of my friends, and it was at night, you know, after a long night. Now, we were all in vibes, but it would take a lot to have a, uh, a group uh, hallucination. Um, so a few of my friends had been seeing this light, and uh, it was just flashing and staying at the same uh, height above the mountain. Now, we all thought that it was uh, from uh, a telephone ta- uh, tower. Um, and at least that's what I thought, but they swore it wasn't. And so we, we had seen it there for about two or three hours, pretty much since uh, the sun went down. Then all of a sudden we see it slowly float away, um, almost like a balloon. Now it was a weather balloon. I don't know. Uh, just another something weird I saw. But, yeah, just wanted to share the quick few stories I saw out in, the, uh, in that wilderness. Um, yeah, keep on keeping on. Great podcast. Thanks. Thank you, Matt. Let me start off by saying this. Satellites are quite often confused for UFOs. But there's one thing we need to remember. Satellites have a trajectory. They travel in one straight motion. They never change that trajectory, and they certainly never veer off. So what Matt saw that night was most likely not a satellite. However, it is possible that it was a high-altitude aircraft, or, in this case, several high-altitude aircraft. Perhaps they were launched from the same location, and midway through their flight, veered off in different trajectories to meet up with their destination. Now this is simply a theory. I am not a military aircraft expert, but I do know that there are several planes that have the ability to travel at very high altitudes. Now as for Matt's second story, in my opinion this could easily have been just a helicopter. Perhaps it was too far away to hear the roar of the engine. And that green light he spoke of, I happen to know that when helicopters travel at night, there's usually a cab light on that's tinted to help preserve night vision. Now, typically, that color is red 
but I suppose green would be just as effective. So it's possible that what Matt saw was simply a helicopter with a cab light. Then again. But then again, I wasn't there, and that sounds awfully easy to identify. But it's Matt's third story that really jogged my memory. Several years ago, two friends and I went backpacking in the San Gabriel Mountains of Southern California. We trekked about, I'd say, 10 to 12 miles back into the mountains. Not a light in sight, and not a person in sight. We set up camp that evening, and to our surprise, the sky was alive. You could see every star, most of the planets, shooting stars, satellites, you name it, you can see it. And at a certain point, we began to see a faint, white flashing light coming from the opposite ridge. Now, our first thought was that this was simply a cell phone tower with a white flashing indicator on the top. But given our location and the altitude, we were probably, I'd say, at close to 10,000 feet and had no service whatsoever. I would say that this most likely was not a cell phone tower. And in fact, if it was, it would have had to have been the largest tower ever created because it lit up literally half of the sky. Now, this light would flash every three to four seconds, uh, and we never did seem to find a source to it. And I just couldn't help but notice the similarities between Matt's experience and what me and my friends experienced several years ago. Thank you again, Matt, for taking the time to share this information. Our next call, coincidentally, also comes from that same area. The following call is Antonio's from Oregon. Hey, guys. My name is Antonio. Um, originally from California, living in Staten, Oregon currently right now. This story takes place in 2006. I was about 19 at the time. I was camping by myself up in Azusa uh, Canyon in East Fork area. There's an area called uh, the Bridge to Nowhere. And if you go a little further back, about seven miles in, it's called Fisherman's Hook. Uh, this place has like a place where people can bungee jump and about 4.35 o'clock, everyone kind of clears out and it starts getting dark unless you're going to camp out that way. And uh, so I was camping by myself. I want to say it was rather clear night, a little cloud cover, but nothing too crazy. Um, I've been camping my entire life. I've been coyote hunting, so I know animals pretty well. We're out that way. We have a small bear, black bear population out that way, and uh, some bobcats and mountain lion, but you never really see or hear the mountain lions at all. I want to say it's probably about 8.30, finished cooking dinner. I cleaned up, got ready to turn in for the night at my tent, and about 10.30, I got just the overwhelming feeling that I needed to get up and look outside. I don't, know, I don't know why I've never really had that feeling before. So I get up, check on the fire, it's out. I don't know what's really going on, but I still feel really uneasy. And uh, I get outside of the tent and I walk probably about 40 yards from the, the, my tent to relieve myself and uh, finish up and start heading back to the tent, not feeling a little better. Maybe I don't know. I was just about myself or what was going on, but I didn't feel too nervous anymore. And uh, I started walking, and just as I start to unzip the tent to get back in, I hear the scariest thing I've ever heard in my life. Probably lasted about 20 seconds, 20, 25 seconds. I mean, it was deep. I mean, it filled the entire canyon. 
it was it, but it didn't seem so far away but it, it's hard telling with being in a canyon you know exactly where it came from but it was the loudest sound i've ever heard in my life it was it was deep and it was scary it definitely wasn't a coyote and there was no mountain lion that i've ever heard i've heard mountain lions in heat and i mean they're scary on their own but this was this was scary it was very deep it was different from anything i've ever heard um if anyone knows of what this was or could have been but it, it, it was it was loud it was the biggest sound i've ever heard thank you thank you antonio now i've spent a lot of time in this area and in fact i've hiked this hike that antonio was talking about several times and basically what he's describing is exactly what it is it's a 10 mile footpath to a steel bridge that spans the distance of the san gabriel river Now, originally, there was a road planned to meet up with the bridge, but due to tax reasons, that road was never completed. So as it stands now, there's simply a bridge in the middle of nowhere. Now, this area, despite the fact that it's used recreationally quite often, is somewhat dangerous. You have the rushing river of the San Gabriel. You have mountain lions, bear, rattlesnakes, scorpions. In addition to high walls, loose rocks, you name it, this place is not for the faint of heart. So to me, it seems kind of crazy that in the middle of the night, someone would be out pranking campers. It just doesn't seem to be a very smart move. Now, as for the sound that Antonio heard that evening, my first thought was that he simply heard a big cat in heat, either it be a bobcat or a mountain lion. I've played the sounds on here before, and I can tell you, they're downright terrifying. But as Antonio described, he seemed to be a bit of a seasoned outdoorsman so I find it hard to believe he wouldn't recognize that sound. His story did, however, remind me of a video I saw on YouTube several years ago, a somewhat infamous video. The following audio was recorded on October 22nd of 2007 in Sequoia National Park here in California. The audio details strange screaming sounds heard by the hikers that day. Check this out. Very strange noise. Seems to be coming from some kind of an animal. It's been going on for about a minute now. Now there were also some structure discoveries and even a sighting on the ridge above them, but we'll save that for another day. Now I'm not sure what it is that Antonio heard that evening, but I can tell you this, if it spooks a seasoned outdoorsman, then you know it's got to be something substantial. Thank you again, Antonio, for sharing the call. 
Now, as I said in the opener, I have a bit of a surprise for you guys this evening. But before we get to that, a few announcements. I'm currently working on restocking the shop. You guys are buying stuff faster than I can keep it on the shelves, which I truly, truly appreciate. But if there's something there you'd like to see that doesn't exist, please just shoot me an email or send me a message on Facebook asking. You never know, it may be something that I can easily include in the shop. The rates and reviews are flying in, and I truly, truly appreciate that. But let's not stop there. If you enjoy the show and you have not yet left a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or on iTunes or anywhere that you listen to your podcast, please do so now. A five-star review and a few quick words about why you enjoy the show goes a long way to help us grow our audience. So your 30-second contribution could help grow our numbers by dozens. And lastly, the holidays are right around the corner. So if you're looking for the perfect gift for that cryptid fan in your life, why don't you consider Cryptid Crate? Cryptid Crate is the first and only monthly box subscription service for fans of cryptozoology. Each month, you get a carefully curated crate filled with all kinds of monstrous goodies, from t-shirts to hats to books, DVDs, and collectibles. Cryptid Crate offers two levels. For $40, you get the main crate, which is valued at around $80 per month. And for $20, you get Cryptid Crate Lite, which is valued at around $40 a month. Shipping is free to the U.S., and gift subscriptions are available on the website. So visit CryptidCrate.com to pick up your order today. Okay, now for that surprise. I'm going to preface this surprise with the following submission from listener Mark. The Nashoba Chito, or the Dog Man. The story of the Noshibo Chito, wolf spirit or big man, begins long ago with the Choctaw Indians. It was said that at one time Sasquatch was a killer, a cannibal, and a thief. Many tribes were at war with these beings because they would steal women and children, murder horses, and kill the warriors. The chief of the Chata, the Choctaw, called for a great gathering of as many tribes as possible to combat the Bigfoot tribes. Word was sent far and wide, and many tribes came with their medicine men and women and best warriors to the gathering. It was discussed what should be done to stop these attacks by the Bigfoots. Spears and guns and arrows were having no effect, so the medicine men came up with a plan that involved black magic. They would create a small army of warriors to fight the Bigfoots, but they would have to be transformed into something beyond human strength, so they decided to turn these men into wolfmen, big and ferocious, like werewolves. They picked the best warriors and did the spell one evening at a powwow. Once transformed into the wolf-type men, they set out to track the Bigfoot down. And the great battle was fought. Many Bigfoot and wolfmen were killed, but the spell worked. The Bigfoot left the people alone after that, but there was a new problem. These wolfmen were created to kill, and the people were terrified of them, and they were causing trouble in the tribes. So the medicine men met again to decide what to do about the wolfmen. They decided that they had to kill them now also. So they made a plan to set them up. The medicine men invited the wolfmen on a hunt and they agreed. Once in the forest, they led the wolfman into a thicket and set it on fire. But the wolfmen escaped the trap and were furious at them for tricking them. And they vowed to kill all the people they could for this betrayal. The people were terrified so they cried out in ceremony to the great spirit to help them and he responded. 
God was angry with the people, but he said he would not kill the Nashoba Chito because they were men first who were turned into abominations by the use of magic. But he agreed he would help the people. The Great Spirit went before the Noshiba and the Bigfoot elders and told them he would not wipe their kind from the earth if they agreed to never kill man again. They agreed. So they were allowed to live on, and in return, God told Bigfoot and the Noshiba that he would give them a second earth, where they could hide from man and to bury their dead. God told the tribes that this would serve as a lesson that magic such as this should never be used, and to trust him instead. So that is the basic story of the dogmen. Since the time of old tales, it is now believed the Bigfoot and Noshiba have evolved together. The Bigfoot is king of the land, so they allow the Noshiba to watch over territory and over the babies. But there is an uneasy truce still, and it is said that they still fight sometimes and kill each other. The Noshiba are from the spiritual realm. They are interdimensional and reside in that second earth, and most times stay close to the reservations in sacred Indian burial grounds. They do not reproduce like the Bigfoot and can't be killed by humans' guns. That's the story of how the Dogman came to be. The world is ever-changing, and this show is no different. In order to keep things fresh and interesting, I've decided to include a short little interview, maybe once a month or so. And tonight is the first episode to feature one of these interviews. You may know tonight's guest from Sasquatch Podcast, but you probably recognize him from the Small Town Monsters documentary series. His most recent film, The Bray Road Beast, drops tomorrow. So please welcome director Seth Breedlove to the program. Welcome to the show, Seth. How are you doing? I, I'm great. I'm, I'm tired. I'm, uh, we went out for a, like a birthday celebration tonight uh, because my birthday is next week, but I'm going to be gone, and I'm recuperating from the uh, Sunday I ate for dinner. <laughs> well, happy birthday in advance. I didn't realize your birthday was coming up. Yeah, it's not until the tenth, but we're gonna be we're gonna be somewhere in New York, in the middle of nowhere, uh, in New York. So this was like our date night, you know. So I brought you on the show today to uh, well, you have a new DVD coming out. Uh, what on the fifth? Is that correct? Yeah, it comes out. It comes out Friday. So it's the day after this episode airs. We're we're recording this on Wednesday. Um, so I, I wanted to bring you on, and I I, I love this this film. Uh, it's my favorite cryptid. And uh, I wanted to bring you on and have a, a little discussion about uh, some behind-the-scenes stuff and, you know, just some more insight on what was going on. And, and hopefully uh, we can convince a few people to check out the film because it's it's definitely worth uh, you doing so. Awesome. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you liked it. We're, we're pretty confident this is, like, in terms of quality, this is, like, our best movie. Um, but we're also very – I think everyone on the crew is kind of anxious to see what the response is going to be like and uh, – you know, like if it sort of busts out of the, the little small town monsters bubble and can find some like a, a, a larger audience or if it's kind of kind of maintain where we've been at for the last like two years. It's interesting because like our our movies tend to like they, they have a, a really wide audience reaction. But there's when Mothman came out, when the Mothman of Point Pleasant came out, it kind of burst out of the small town monsters bubble and we've been waiting for like the next film that would do that. And like, we, we all kind of have a sense that this could be that, 
sort of movie. It's just going to be, I think it's going to be down to word of mouth, honestly, because, mm-hmm. you know, like we don't have a million dollar marketing budget. So we're, we're kind of relying <laughs> on other people telling their friends about it. And, you know, that's part of what the paranormal uh, community is about is, you know, lifting other people and, and uh, sharing other people's work and, you know, that kind of thing. That's, that's definitely something that, that I try to do, especially with like cryptic grade and stuff like that. And uh, that's also why I decided to have you on today to, uh, you know, kind of, give you a soapbox so that some people that may otherwise never hear of the documentary can get a chance to check it out. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> now, let me ask you a quick question. What is the determining factor in uh, escaping the small town monsters bubble that you spoke of? Now, it sounds like to me, you have a monster like Mothman. Everybody knows who Mothman is. I mean, he's, there's a meme going around right now about uh, yeah. Moth and Mothman, all this stuff. Is it based on the monster is it based on the execution of the documentary is it based on the the geographical location what are the factors in your opinion um as far as you know what gets you out of that that space well i mean it's interesting because we we eventually you know our movies tend to find their way to amazon prime and you know it'd be sort of a free viewing for for amazon prime customers and at that point they all sort of burst onto this much larger scale audience we've had 3.5 million views on amazon since we went up back in that's awesome uh 2016 so so the the growth has been exponential but for for mothman it was on a completely different level um and i think that really does just come down to the fact that to me and i just got in an argument with lauren coleman about this last weekend to me (laughs) the mothman is like the most popular cryptid right now or at least the most culturally recognized right now you know there's there seems to be like a real following for mothman as a character um so i understand that bigfoot is sort of the the one that everyone thinks of but i also believe that there's a a growing um interest in in something like the mothman so i really do you know like it it there there is a certain level of recognition that comes with something like bigfoot but um, our movies aren't typically called or they've never been called, you know, like Bigfoot or anything like that. We've got on the trail of Bigfoot coming out next year, but you know, they're all regional titles. So it's Boggy Creek monster and mm-hmm. Beast Whitehall. Mm-hmm. And the weird thing about that is the movies that have hit on a, on a massive scale commercially for us are not the ones you would probably think they are like, uh, Beast of Whitehall was massive for us. Uh, pro- probably, um, in terms of like profit and the amount of money that went into it versus what was earned, it's by far our most successful movie, um, which is kind of crazy because it was, you know, it was made for like 600 bucks. And <laughs> for some reason, that movie found a, a very large audience. And, you know, we were getting, when that movie came out on Amazon, we were contacted by Amazon's acquisition department because they wanted to help promote it because it was doing so well. Wow. wow. Um, so that one really took off and then the other one would have been invasion on chestnut ridge um that that one actually had a very successful opening when it first came out and beyond that you know the mothman obviously and everything else is kind of existing sort of right below those two well speaking of uh your films the latest one uh the bray road beast i got that title right didn't i you did i always want to say it the other way around (laughs) yeah i know congratulations on that it's it's been like the biggest uh for some reason it, it has been like a big detraction for a lot of people is the fact that the movie isn't called the beast of Road, and i keep having to get to like explain 
to people that there was this terrible, terrible horror movie in the in the very early 2000s. I've seen it. Called, called <laughs> The Beast of Bray Road. Yeah, I own it. And, uh, and um, you know, like, we, were, we wanted to separate ourselves from that and at least, you know, make it so we didn't have a movie with the exact same title as a terrible yeah. Asylum-era sci-fi movie. Well, I also like that you mix it up a little bit. It's just, when you say it out loud for the first time, it's difficult to not go to the Beast of Bray Road, which is, you know, such a right. common phrase to say yeah um, the a number of the reviews have just gone ahead and called it the beast of Bray road so <laughs> i i'm i'm confident no matter what people will figure it out as long as they get the dvds in their hands i guess that's all that matters right yeah yeah well speaking of the of the film uh the opening sequence to this to this movie i i've i've got to talk to you a moment about this uh and for those that haven't seen it yet it opens uh i i suppose like a, a hammer horror film um, mm-hmm. in the aspect that there's a storybook, there's candles, there's, uh, like hints of like witchcraft or, or, uh, you know, some sort of, um, occultism going on. And it, it, the way it was done is phenomenal. Uh, the lighting's perfect. The, the, the score by Brandon was amazing. Um, what was the inspiration behind all of that? Um, we, we had a sit down meeting last, last year, man, I can't even remember. It would have been shortly after we had worked with Santino on Flatwoods. And I had this discussion about, uh, hammer horror kind of being the big inspiration behind the uh, style and, and sort of the visuals in this movie. So I wanted like these really deep reds and kind of, you know, like over probably overly saturated somewhat and stuff like that. And it didn't. The final product doesn't necessarily have what we originally discussed, but um, it did maintain the opening, uh, which was this sort of storybook opening that would lead into um, the first sort of uh, werewolf myth, which is, you know, like Aeon and Zeus Mm -hmm. and all that stuff. That was always how we were going to open the movie. The book sort of opening and all that um, was part partly santino's idea and uh sort of born out of my idea of keeping this sort of rooted in that hammer horror style and the i i have to say like that entire opening sequence was sort of constructed by santino vitale he he actually built that wall built the window behind the window was a green screen and uh, uh that's so. how that's how the sky and everything kind of came to be in that shot but i could show you the the behind the scenes photos and stuff of that and it's pretty crazy he built the book um built the whole set for that opening shot so you know like the lion's share of the credit on that sequence goes to santino um and it it really is like an, a, a really awesome way to open the movie and i showed i got to show this movie to uh adam uh wingard back in july and adam directs these you know fairly large budgeted movies now compared to what we're doing he's he's currently like making that new king kong versus godzilla which is like a 300 million dollar (laughs) budget just a small film right yeah (laughs) and um he was actually blown away by the opening of this one too and was like his statement was that it like immediately makes you feel like you're watching a Hollywood production rather than, you know, like a small scale independent film. And I I have no problem with like uh, it being a small scale independent film, but if we can attain something that approaches the sort of like Hollywood level 
production values that's that's fantastic for us yeah yeah now i've seen every one of your films and i you know i enjoy every one of them but when this one started i remember watching it in the hotel room at crypticon you'd, you'd slip me a copy uh, i think it was friday evening and i couldn't wait to get upstairs i, I skipped a, pu- a couple things to go watch it and um that opening intro i i sat up i'm like man he's really stepped up his game on this one the that shot where it comes through the window, and for for those that haven't seen it, there it, it opens on a, a dark, looming sky. I believe there's like thunder and lightning, and the camera comes through the window to show the desk that I described earlier. And as a uh, as a film school grad myself, my first question is, how did that shot come together? Like, how did you guys make that shot? So it, it, I'm I'm happy that you uh, shared a little. Uh, behind the camera magic there yeah he he's actually given me a, a vfx breakdown of that entire sequence and st- in fact i think he's given me about five minutes of vfx breakdowns for other stuff he did in the film too so at some point i'd like to put that out there because i did do that for the work that santino did on flatwoods as well so he's kind of you know like santino is going to be like a, a Spielberg level sort of like film genius, I think. Um, and if you're interested in his work, he's got some other stuff on Vimeo. He made, he made a short film called health class. Um, health is spelled H E L L um, <laughs> health class. And uh, he made that last year. And like, he's just, ex- he's, he's exceptionally talented and he's, you know, like his style on, on this stuff is really meshed well with what we were, attempting to do on each film you know like he's always loved stop motion so he was a perfect fit for Mm -hmm. flatwoods monster and he likes building sets and he also modded out the werewolf mask that's used in this movie this is a a five dollar um literally it's a seven dollar amazon bot werewolf (laughs) mask uh that's in the film and then it was modded out um you know to a pretty uh, insane degree, including like they built a, a body suit to go with it and, and stuff like that. But it was all done for around forty five dollars. I want to say. Sorry, it's it's funny. Yeah. I actually had that in one as one of my questions. Mm-hmm. I was so impressed by the mask work and uh, one of the reenactments that I was going to ask you, like you know, how much did you? I didn't want to ask how much you spent on it, but where did you get this this puppet? I thought it was a puppet. It looked really good. So. I've got a lot of funny stories about about the entire costume sort of saga that went on behind the scenes on this movie. Originally, we hired one person to do a a costume for the film. Um, That costume was made at a pretty high cost point for us. Um, I'm sure for for the guy that made it, he would consider it a low, you know, like kind of <laughs> yeah. a low ball. And and I get it, but like for us, it was it was pretty high, and we got it, and we attempted some shots with it, and it didn't work at all. Like it wasn't even remotely going to work. So um, we pulled that out, and then uh, Adam actually put me in touch with a buddy of his that he used to make. Uh, horror films with down in Alabama and he thought he would probably work with us on a pretty good you know like on a a budget Um, but this was getting really late in the game like I want to say this was we would have been talking to this guy around last June so it was like we were getting down down to the wire in terms of like needing to get this costume stuff done and um, you know we talked to him and he gave us a price and I was like we can probably make that work maybe 
but we were also going to have to drive to Alabama and do fittings and all this stuff. And it was getting too late to pull it off. So there was a night where, uh, again, a lot of the stories with STM behind the scenes involve us sitting in like a Denny's or something talking. (laughs) So we were all, we were sitting in a Denny's one night. Um, and it was Zach, Jason, myself, and then Santino and Santino thought we could make, um, a costume store bought work, uh, we just needed the right kind of costume. So we actually went on Amazon while we we're sitting in this Denny's and we picked out a mask that cost $7 and we um, modded that mask as soon as it came in pretty much. And then Santino built this body suit. Um, Jason is actually in, in the suit and Jason is probably the, the smallest member of the STM crew. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's also kind of co- comedic. Like if you know, who's actually in the suit, it's, it's like, you know, it's, it's probably the least sort of physically imposing member of the crew. Um, but, but he did like a great, he's a, he's like a huge horror movie fan. And, uh, I think he actually did like a really good job in the suit and he had a lot of fun wearing it and stuff. So it definitely, it works in this movie far better than we thought it would, especially there's a couple shots in it that I think are actually really, really, really cool. Um, and I say that as, you know, like I'm the director of the movie, but I'm also just part of the crew when it comes down to it. And when we were filming them, a lot of the time it was either Zach or Jason or Zach or Santino that were actually doing the filming. So like, you know, like I'll get home and look at this footage and it's almost like seeing it for the first time. Cause I, you know, I wasn't the guy behind the camera. And, uh, in this case it was, it was really cool to see some of these shots, you know, come together. The backlit sort of stuff was something I really wanted in the film. Like the, the foggy backlit shots, um, I was watching John Carpenter's The Thing sort of religiously over the last six months for some reason. I can and see I, the influence there, actually. Yeah, now you yeah. say that, yeah. Yeah, it was. It definitely got incorporated into that the look of the monster and some of those shots, especially the the other thing. The reason those the mask works so well is because of the eyes, um, and the eyes are just reflective bicycle tape. Um, <laughs> Brilliant. And, Brilliant. Yeah, and and then if you shine a light on that, it reflects it uh, naturally. So we were trying to stay away from any sort of like in camera, or not in camera, but any sort of like post yeah, post uh, production, yeah, yeah post production sort of CG or anything like that. And we really thought if you could pull that off, that look off of of sort of having naturally glowing red eyes it would be really unnerving and actually like if you watch some of the unedited footage it's even creepier than the way some of it ended up in the film like it it something about the way that light reflects off that the, the tape <laughs> you know like and you're you're just seeing the outline of that mask it's really kind of unnerving and, and speaking, yeah, the music too by oh the yeah way. let's you, touch on you that had yeah yeah because you had mentioned the music and i did want to say like i think Brandon, so Brandon is a huge uh, fan of this band, Under Oath, and he came to me very early on and said that he had an opportunity to work with Chris Dudley, who's, I guess he was the keyboardist in that band. I wouldn't know. I've never actually listened to them. Um, But he was the keyboardist in this band, and Brandon wanted to bring him on for this one. So they actually split the score duties on the film, Um, but Brandon was definitely sort of uh, steering that ship. And I think the the score is just so different from his other scores because um you know there isn't the, the flatwoods has this very like 
melodic, uh, you know, there's a lot of like themes going on. It's very melodic. It's fun to listen to. And this has a very like unnerving sort of creepy vibe to it. Um, that isn't exactly pleasant at times. Like it really can get under your skin. And, uh, he just, Brandon did something over the weekend. He was scoring some short film that had like a uh, sort of jazz influence. Like, like there were all these jazz instruments I was listening to. And that was interesting because it, it, he can switch up, you know, what he's what he's sort of working with, and he can change the the vibe of a film with the music to such a degree that it's really surprising. Like if you watched one of our movies without his score, it's it's a really interesting evolution to watch it go from not really having his score in there and just sort of watching it with the temp score to actually having his music in there because he does such a good job with yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, I can definitely see how it adds a dimension to the film. When I was at Crypticon, I got to hang out with Linda Godfrey for a little bit on Friday night, and that woman is amazing. Uh, Yeah. Tell me a little bit about how she got involved and and what she meant to the production. If she wasn't involved, would there even be a production of this film? No, there there really wouldn't be a a Brave Road Beast film if not for her. I I actually met her for the first time last September at uh, Lauren Coleman's convention in in maine Mm -hmm. and she was one of the speakers and i told her at that event like you know like we want to we want to make a movie about the beast of bray road um i said i'll tell you up front i don't i don't have any intention of making this unless you're involved um so i said if if it's a situation where you're not either you're not interested in being involved or it's one of these things where you're kind of you know you're going to come come in and do like a 20 minute interview and you don't want to spend time with us that's that's totally fine we're still probably not going to make that movie because this really i needed her in it like i needed lyle and boggy creek monster or i needed jeff wamsley in the mothman point pleasant like she just she was going to be the title character or central not the title character god uh (laughs) the, the central character that sort of carried us through the entire story and the interesting thing about that is like in retrospect if she hadn't been involved there really wouldn't have been a movie period because so many witnesses dropped out during the production of the film um you know that at the end of the day it's kind of linda's movie Um, between her and john frederickson you've got all the sort of key points of the original you know late 80s early 90s beast of bray road sightings yeah um so she was she was uh vital to the entire film actually happening and um and she adds such an interest she she's like has such an interesting presence and sort of a different type of of person than has been in any of our other films as well so i feel like this is the one where people are really noticing that central character unlike they have on some of the other films and i know people love jeff wamsley and lyle blackburn and that stuff but this mm-hmm. is one where i keep hearing over and over how how much people like linda and are interested in linda's story so i'm i'm really happy about that actually well she's a, she's a great storyteller and she she's knowledgeable she knows this stuff she basically i don't want to say she created it but she discovered <laughs> a lot of this stuff so you know yeah. in the same way that um uh, that you interviewed uh, ed and fred may for uh, <laughs> flatwoods Without them, I feel like that film wouldn't be the same way. So, you know, I definitely agree that without Linda, this this film just wouldn't be the same it, it, or, you know, possibly exist according to, you know, what you're saying there. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, and it would it would have been the same way with with Flatwoods actually. Now that you said the Flatwoods was like one where that originally was supposed to be a YouTube episode of Case Files, and when Ed and Fred May came on, then it kind of became something else. But yeah, you're right. She she she's the key to the whole thing. So you know, speaking of uh, you know Wisconsin and my terrible segues, I'd always heard a rumor that Bray Road was a gated road that they did their best to keep everyone off. But from the film, it looked like you guys had easy access to it. What's the situation up there? No, I mean, there's no way that road was ever gated. There's too many crossroads. There's, I think there's a handful of roads. I'm saying that because it's the line in the movie, but there's a handful (laughs) of roads that cross its path, uh, Brookwood Lane, Hospital Road, and one other one. So, I mean, there's, there wouldn't be any way to really gate that road off. There's tons of houses along it. Um, you know, it's it's in clear sight of, of two major highways. Um, it's not a scary road either. Is the other thing I keep I keep sort of telling people this. You know, like there's there's something unnerving about it or kind of off about it after a while. But that's kind of what's weird about it to me. It's like you know, like at first blush, we we all repeatedly kind of talked about how mundane and dull that that road is you know it's not there's nothing uh, I, okay you grew up in in you know the, the cambridge salt fork area and yeah. i grew up in bolivar and in bolivar there's there's some really creepy farm roads you know like you you're driving around in the middle of nowhere late at night that are genuinely creepy that is not bray road um it looked pretty bray wide road, open like it's wide farming open. communities yeah, and you can see houses pretty much at any point. You're going to be able to see a house, um, and you can see the highway. Uh, pretty much the entire stretch of, of six miles of road, you can see the highway off to, to the one side. And for the first couple of miles, you can see the highway running on the other side. So, you know, you don't feel isolated. You don't feel like it's even all that rural. So that's kind of weird about it. But, it, but there is something unnerving about it that sneaks up on you after a certain amount of time there which is strange you would think it would go the other direction you'd get you know, like initially it. yeah you'd, yeah so th- that that's not how bray is um there it's a strange yeah it's 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 not it's not gated off you could go there today uh but i don't know what to tell you to look for because there really isn't much to see <laughs> on on the actual road well you know Let's dig a little deeper into that. As far as this creature's concerned, and of course we're talking about the, you know, I guess a dogman type creature. Um, mm-hmm. Is there anywhere for this thing to hide that could go undetected? I mean, from the looks of things, it looked like it was mostly, you know, corn and, and maybe soybean or something like that with a few tree lines here and there. But for the most part, it looked pretty wide open and flat. Yeah, I mean, I would have to say uh, I don't think there's a location there where something could could live um, you know, something sort of traveling through the area could probably hide out in some of those farming uh, patches. So, you know, like most farmers' fields have patches of woods yeah. around them, yeah. and it's like that. It's like that on Bray Road, but they're not. You know, it's not like a huge patch of woods where something could sort of make a home for a while. I don't. I don't foresee that being the case at all. Um, you know, and and the the Beast of Bray Road sightings really only took place over a few years uh in the late 80s early 90s now there have been occasional sightings here and there since then but there was the you know there was a span of time there where there were a lot of sightings around the area um but as far as bray road itself i do not see anything living there 
it just wouldn't it wouldn't go undetected for very long especially with you know all the farmers living around there who are or who are usually you know keeping an eye out for any sort of large predatory animals that <laughs> yeah. might take take down livestock um so i i don't buy into personally i don't buy into like there's some sort of undiscovered species of of wolf-like man-like creatures that are living in that area because it just doesn't I mean, biologically, that doesn't make a ton, ton of sense to me. But it also doesn't make a ton of sense to me that that they could find a place to to hide out on that particular road. Yeah, yeah. Unless we're talking about something that's not biological, of course. Uh, and you touched yes. on that in the film uh, several different ways, uh, bringing in the occult and some like Satan worship and, and stuff like that. And there was one particular story, and I don't know if you want to discuss it on here or you want to save it for the film, but uh, it was a an encounter in the 1930s. Uh, mm-hmm. That took place. Is that something you want to touch on, or would you rather oh, sure, save yeah. that for the film? I mean, that was that was my favorite story, and it was one that um, I, I actually really excited me about um, having in the film. And it was kind of one of the ones that made me uh, decide that this was definitely going to be the the movie we made next because it it's a, it's a historical account which I love, but it's also kind of creepy because of the setting. Um, the story, the story you're referring to took place in, I believe 1936 at a place called St. Coletta's in Jefferson County. Um, Jefferson County is an adjoining County to Walworth County. Um, I'm not sure the exact distance from Elkhorn to, uh, St. Coletta's. I know the drive took us 55 minutes to get from one place to another, but you know, you're kind of driving around in the middle of nowhere. So Mm -hmm. those back roads tend to run that way um st coletta's is a really creepy place it's abandoned now it's a closed down mental asylum um it was but it's it's a good size it's about the size of like a small college campus okay um so it's a big big location back in the 30s it was surrounded by these native american burial grounds um which are burial mounds i'm sorry Uh, that's kind of important actually (laughs) um so, so there was a night watchman who was working the grounds one night, and he uh, was wandering around the grounds. Came around this corner, and there was a um, creature up on one of the mounds digging. And um, he said it was a, a dog-like, man-like thing. He said it it stood on its hind legs, and uh, sort of uh, started walking toward him. And as it was coming toward him, it was making this sort of moaning or, or growling noise um, that he later sort of connected to being maybe some sort of proto-human language. Um, this is late at night. He's got a flashlight on this thing, and there's a dog walking on its hind legs talking to him, <laughs> you know, like approaching him uh, after digging in, a, in, a, in, a, in a, some sort of Indian burial mound. I mean, the entire setting is like ripe for some sort of horror movie oh, it's but perfect. he takes a swig yeah. of his flask and you know, yeah rubs his eyes kind of situation yeah yeah it'd be great um so it according to him as it was coming toward him it was it was making this noise he later told uh linda godfrey what what the noise was and she realized what it was was it was actually saying the word Gadara, and Gadara was a town in the New Testament where Jesus cast demons out of a man who was in a graveyard um, that went into a herd of swine, and the swine ran down and leapt off a cliff into, uh, assumedly, the Sea of Galilee. Um, 
but that it's an interesting connection because of the fact that later in the movie we get into all this occult mm-hmm. sort of hypothesis as to what might be, you know, the cause for the Beast of Bray Road. Um, and here you have an account of a creature in 1936 that's saying the name of this town that's connected with a demonic possession case. Um, there's there's also a uh, a case that had taken pl- place a couple weeks prior to that. Um, and it didn't involve a dog man, but it did involve a priest at St. Coletta's um, performing an exorcism on one of the patients who would have been a child um, at St. Coletta's. Um, and he felt that whatever he had cast out of this child ended up following him around. So hmm. I don't know if, you know if you want to make a connection between the two or not, but it is interesting that you know, you had this this weird dog man encounter taking place in the thirties and then later uh in the in the eighties and nineties you find out that there was all this sort of occult activity taking place around Bray Road right around the time where all of a sudden people start seeing some sort of upright walking wolf like creature again. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely, you know, at at the best a, a coincidence, but there's, you know, a, a lot of connections here that could be made. Uh, whether or not they should be made, it's another question, but they definitely could be. Well, let me move on to my to my last couple questions here. As far as the town of Elkhorn's concerned, it, it seemed to me that they had no interest in embracing the culture of, of this legend, uh, you know, like Mothman does, or uh, uh, there's now a Flatwoods uh, Festival again. Uh, well, you, you guys have Minerva Monster Day as well. Uh, do you think that that'll change at any point, or is it... Are they pretty set in their ways that they want nothing to do with this, and they don't think that it's a a, a lucrative uh, venture to take on? Or what's the situation going on up there? I, I mean, they they have nothing to do with the Beast of Bray Road. There's no, you, there isn't even a gift store in town that sells Linda's book. Oh, wow. um, there's nothing. There there is no hint anywhere that you are in a place that is sort of more renowned for its local legend than anything. I don't think I, I I don't know if they don't understand that that is the case or if they're genuinely they don't care and they don't want to know any part of it. I don't know. I don't know what the deal is. You know, like in our movie, one of the Brays says he doesn't think it has any commercial value. Uh-huh. And I mean, they, they couldn't be more wrong, but that's the way. <laughs> you know, that's that's the way they're perceiving it. Yeah. So, well, I make my um, living off of weird stuff, so I can tell him right now he's he's dead wrong. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, they, you know, there there are people that travel to that area just to drive down Bray Road, um, you know, who would love to go into some sort of, you know, look at it, some sort of like exhibit or mm-hmm. like, you know, like Guided a display, uh, yeah, a display stand in in the local city hall with like some newspaper articles would probably become a big thing because there's nothing else in town uh, to, to sort of even lead you to believe you're there, but. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't see it changing just just based on the sort of attitude toward it that we encountered. Now, obviously, I, I, I could be wrong, um, and these things can change. I mean, Minerva, you know, well, to an extent, Minerva still doesn't really want anything to do with the Minerva monster. But the it, it does take sort of the, the right per- person coming in and, and, I guess, opening people's eyes to, to what you know, mm-hmm. what can actually happen when a town embraces its local monster. Well, hopefully we have a listener out there in the Elkhorn area that can head up this mission and get us something set up over there. Yeah. Yeah, it should. I mean, there, there should be something. It's it's kind of, 
it's kind of mind blowing. I've always said when it comes to these stories, like whether or not you know there there's a physical reality to the monsters is kind of irrelevant. Mm-hmm. Like it's a, it's a piece of that town's history, whether they accept it or not. It is like it's a it's a and it's actually one of the biggest pieces of its history, whether they realize it or not. Yeah. Well, you look at a town like Rhinelander, which is also in Wisconsin, that's embracing Hodag. the Hodag legend. Yeah. yeah. Which is, you know, a, an admitted fake. So, you know, mm-hmm. obviously this stuff works to an extent. Um, yeah. Hopefully an entre- entrepreneur gets the idea and gets the funds and puts it all together at some point. Yeah, because small towns are going away, guys. Like, that's <laughs> that's the unfortunate reality of, of America today is that small towns are drying up mm-hmm. and we we were just in one over the weekend lawndale where the sort of infamous marlin low uh thunderbird uh, attempted abduction supposedly happened back in 1977 and you know like i had this really interesting discussion with a guy that lived there he actually came flying at us on a, a he, he was he was wielding a cane and riding around on a moped but he um <laughs> He, t- he told me that at one time that town, Lawndale, had four grocery stores, three gas stations, and a dance hall. And today there is, there's, there's one road that goes through it, and there's no gas stations, no grocery stores. And the one local grain elevator that's there that's sort of the big uh, local employer is, is apparently going out of business. So, like, you know, like if, if we can find – not to get us horribly off – off topic here but no, like the point fine, is if if a town can find something like that that you know that would help it attract local attention and i'm not endorsing hoaxing that's not what i'm doing here. Sure, i'm saying sure. like like actually embracing the the history of these stories and realizing that there are people who might not care as much about some of the historical events that have gone on in the area but who would come around to something like a local monster legend uh you know like if if these small towns will embrace what they've got it it could can it can literally act as the lifeblood for those towns like it has for point pleasant or roswell yeah well you know this kind of actually is a good segue uh of all the places that you filmed and you've been to new york west virginia um arkansas and now illinois a bunch of other places what's the most terrifying experience you've had filming and it doesn't have to be paranormal necessarily you know did you have um, the, the guy with the moped and the cane? Was was perhaps he the scariest <laughs> guy? Like, have you have you ever you and your crew have you ever stumbled on anything or experienced anything? And in, in you know, you thought to yourself, "Oh, we might be in trouble here." So there, I get, like I haven't been terrified. Like I haven't had a terrifying experience. But um, I was filming on the trail of Bigfoot back in June. In, in Oklahoma, um, and I was in a place called Area X, which is in the Wachita um, Mountains. It's actually kind of in a valley. It's uh, ni- Area X is nine and a half miles off of any sort of major paved road. Mm-hmm. You have to. It takes about two and a half hours to traverse those nine and a half miles um, because <laughs> of how bad the roads are. Yeah. Um, and it's not a place where people are where where I was. I was in there with the North American Wood Ape Conservancy, and um, I, I was in there for two and a half days, sort of documenting what they do. Um, and on on my last night there, um, I'd just gone to bed in a tent. Uh, again, we're we're in the middle of nowhere. You don't even really see planes in there. It's actually very. It becomes very. Um, 
claustrophobic weirdly enough after a while even though you're you're out in the wild you start to feel really penned in and you are so far from civilization that it, it becomes kind of unnerving but on that on that final night uh i was laying in bed late late at night it was around three o'clock in the morning and uh something came a rock actually came crashing off the side of this mountain uh or i guess large hill that sits next to the camp and slammed into the metal roof of this uh what they call the hooch but it's basically just like one of those big metal garages or outbuildings that they built there okay um it basically something had thrown a rock it came flying off the hill slammed into the top of that and then as soon as it did that it let out this really loud hoot and then a sort of uh laughter sound and when i say hoot i don't mean like an owl hooting i mean like sort of a like a whoop um and then this weird what, what the closest thing we could find that it sounded like was a gibbon laughing and um interesting yeah, that's the only thing. That's the only thing I've had happen to me out out in the you know like on the filming that I that I immediately couldn't explain. It wasn't an owl, and it wasn't a coyote, and um, whatever it was was big. Uh, like just just you know like the night before we had had a armadillo like uh, grunting around our our tent, and those things sound like a bear. Like they can sound like <laughs> a bear outside your tent late at night, and. And even having said that, this this clearly was something with very large lungs. Like whatever, it's like the way I word it is. It's almost like when you when you watch those old John Wayne movies and they have the the, the sort of Native American Apache or whatever let out a war whoop. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. It sounded like that at the beginning, and then it became this weird laughter. And um, you know, it didn't. It, it wasn't a. It wasn't a bird, and it wasn't. It wasn't a coyote, and it wasn't. You know, a, a mountain lion. Even though there were mountain lions in there, so um, you know, I'm left with not not too many options as to what was in there, and it, it definitely wasn't a person. Um, the, the because of where you are uh, to pull off some sort of hoax on the NAWAC, you'd have to probably be suicidal. They're all armed in yeah. there, yeah, <laughs> and. Uh, you know they don't they don't really have a problem you know t- shooting if it's something that they f- feel like is a threat so they i, I ha- just have serious doubts that a person could pull that off and their and goal like the, their goal is to take a body is that not right i mean they're yeah the, their ultimate goal is to to prove that bigfoot exists by you know t- having a, a type specimen and and that probably means killing one so yeah. they will do that if needed um so yeah, you'd have to be crazy to start yelling on that ridge, yeah, but like, knowing that all that was below there. Right, and it, what's funny is like um, once you're in there, that that part of it doesn't even really cross your mind anymore. The idea that it could be people, because once once you've actually gone back down there, you're like, oh, there's no like y- you'd have to drive two and a half hours, and then you'd essentially have to live in the woods. Um, in hopes of pulling a prank off on this group. And it's bizarre. Like it makes so little sense once you've actually been in there that the idea of it being a human being kind of goes away. Yeah. uh, Because it just doesn't make sense given where they are. And they don't Um, announce their location either. That's why it's called area X. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's pretty, pretty hard to get to. Um, so it's, yeah, that, that's the one like really strange, thing that happened to me we've had you know little odds and ends but that was the only really 
well, crazy kind of thing that's occurred. I'd, I'd say that's pretty substantial. That I, I would love to have that happen to me. It, at least that's what I say from the safety of my studio. <laughs> when I'm outside, that may be another another deal, but uh, that sounds yeah, amazing. Yeah, I can, I can tell you, like, we were in a tent, um, and, and it was myself and my buddy Adam, and we were in this tent that we had set up outside of camp, kind of, you know, like not far outside of camp, just like 20 yards outside of camp. You know, I don't know if we thought we were tough outdoorsmen, which we're not. Um, but like w- w- things change the second the sun goes down in that place. <laughs> and uh, yeah. as soon as the sun starts getting going down, you're like, why did we set up the tent that far away from like everyone else? So and there were there weren't that many of us in there to begin with, you know, so I, I never really had a safety in numbers sort of vibe. Um, there was only uh, of the NAWAC. It was Kathy Strain, Bob Strain, Brian Brown, and Daryl Collier. So there's only four people plus Adam and myself. Um, you know, so it was it was a it was a strange experience. It, it was I I I don't refer to it as terrifying though because when it when it happened, it just to me I'd always expected some sort of like unexplainable encounter with like possibly Bigfoot to feel like an episode of ghost adventures or finding Bigfoot, Mm -hmm. you know, where, where like all of a sudden this crazy things happening and it's, it's really creepy and all this. And there was nothing that I, there was nothing that was outright creepy about what happened. It, it, what happened to us was like a natural occurrence happening in, in some sort of creatures, natural environment. That's all, you know, like, like hearing a coyote howl, you know, across a valley. That's, that's basically what it was like hearing only instead of that you're hearing some sort of primate laughter after a rock is thrown you know? it sounds like your experience would have been you know expected in the congo or something like that exactly some some place where you know these creatures for a fact exist and you know yes. nothing's going to be throwing a rock in oklahoma unless it's a human or you know yeah. a, a bipedal primate so that's it crazy stuff well, uh, I'm out of questions, but I do want to see if you'll stick around. I want to play a Dogman Encounter story. And if, you, if you're willing to stick around for a couple minutes, we'll uh, discuss briefly afterwards, see what you think about it, and uh, we'll go from there. Is that something you're interested in? Yeah, let's do it. Awesome. Okay, well, this call comes to us courtesy of uh, Kaka Carrot Cake on YouTube. I didn't make that mm-hmm. name up. And mm-hmm. this is a encounter that took place in Wasila, Alaska, back in 1998. So here's that call. My encounter took place many years ago. I never had the faintest explanation for it until a couple of months ago when I randomly stumbled across Dogman on the internet. I was in my early 20s working swing shifts at the time and commuting about 100 miles each way so it was usually around 2 in the morning by the time I got home. I saw the monster, as I called it, on the northernmost section of Trunk Road in the Matanuska Valley in Alaska. This area is roughly smack in between the towns of Palmer and Wasilla. I was only about 10 miles from home at that point, so it must have been around 2 a.m. Trunk Road is a narrow two-lane road consisting of nothing but twists and turns. The surrounding terrain is somewhat swampy and thick with black spruce. It was late October, days before Halloween. There was no snow on the ground, but it was cold enough to be wary of ice. I was driving an 82 Subaru SW going about 20 miles per hour around a curve 
when my headlights caught a large, dark figure up ahead. I'm bad at judging distance, maybe six car lengths away. I instinctively let off the gas, coasting closer. At first I assumed it was a moose as the area is infested with them, but no, it was standing upright. Bear then? No, not a bear. It looked so strange. Tall enough to be an uncommonly large bear, but far too slender, and it looked like it had spikes running down its neck and back. A Halloween prop? Odd but effective place for one. All those thoughts ran through my head in a fraction of a second. The car was still coasting closer and I could see more details. It was standing in profile gazing across the road. I could clearly see its wolfish muzzle, large upright ears. The spikes on its back were in fact clumps of fur. Its spine curved in a smooth, very natural looking way. It was standing in the ditch inches from the pavement. Because I was focused on its upper body, I don't recall anything about its back legs or if it had a tail. I did see its front legs though, very doggy looking, hanging awkwardly down and slightly towards its front, exactly as you'd expect if a dog stood upright. It was perfectly still and at this point, given the proximity to Halloween, I was quite convinced it was some sort of a Halloween prop because it was clearly not any kind of existing animal. I was deeply impressed and gently stepped on the brakes intending to stop and examine it closely. Then it turned its head towards me. In the tiny fraction of a second that it took for it to swivel its head, I knew I had made a terrible mistake. The fluidness of its movement removed any and all doubt that this was some kind of a prop. It was horribly terrifyingly alive. The pale off-white glow of its eye shine in the headlights destroyed any possibility of a human in a costume. I think I sat there gaping at it in shock for a few seconds, the car barely moving by now, but still inching closer. As I was almost upon it, I think it could have leaned forward and touched the car if it had wanted. I had to look up to see its face. Again, I'm a bad judge of things, but I'm five foot four, and it was a heck of a lot taller than me. Tall like a polar bear standing. Seven feet? Eight? I really can't say. I snapped out of my trance and slammed on the gas. The car fishtailed and I prepared myself for death by monster as I was certain I'd end up in the ditch, but the tires caught the pavement and I drove like a complete maniac all the way home. I did not look back. I have only been on that section of road a few times since, never alone and never in the dark. For the next several years of driving that commute, I went 20 plus miles out of the way to avoid Trunk Road. The thing never made any aggressive moves, but there was something about it that felt very, I don't know, predatory. I never saw anything remotely like it again and never heard any stories about it in the area. So Seth, uh, what do you think of that uh, encounter story? The the description of like the sp- the spikes running up the the back or whatever is really really unusual. Um, like it makes me wonder if it wasn't. I don't know. I I, I the dog man subject is so bizarre to me because biologically a walking upright dog doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, and it's always it's always bothered me. Um, it's one of the reasons I was so interested in like the occult slash supernatural angle to 
to uh, you know the Bray Road Beast. So for me, I mean, when I hear these Dogman stories, I never know what to think um, because we spoke to witnesses who clearly saw something that they didn't understand. That sounds like it was a you know the description that they're giving is is just like that guy, yeah, you know, like uh, and some sort of upright walking dog, and that doesn't make any sense. So and, and it seems like all the attributes to a majority of the encounter stories I hear are very, very similar. I mean, more similar mm-hmm. than than Sasquatch would be, yeah. Right. Uh, that always throws me for a loop because I feel the same way, despite the fact that it's my favorite cryptid. It's also, in my mind, one of the least likely to exist uh, for multiple reasons, uh, one being, you know, the physical makeup of it, and two, the location you see most of these, like you said, Bray Road's fairly populated. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I just have a, a real hard time with all of these unless it's something else like you said something occult related um dare i say extraterrestrial or ultra dimensional something something strange something unearthly um yeah but as far as this one's concerned my my thought here is is this guy seeing a sick bear because it's standing up um probably to get a better look at the car that's coming uh you know the spikes on his neck on the back and neck uh, he later mentioned that it was matted hair so it's possible mm-hmm. it could have mange or something like that, and it just can't reach that part to scratch all the hair off. I, I don't know. Honestly, it's it's that's about the only thing I could come up with. Otherwise, the guy's all a werewolf. When when was that recording made, or do you know when his? Did he say when his sighting happened? He might have said, and I just yeah, it was o- October of nineteen ninety eight. All right. When I'm just it's it, it also sounds a lot like our poster. Like, like <laughs> I mean, you you remove the background, and it's almost like he's describing our poster. Yeah, which, yeah. You know, like with the way the hair on the back's standing out and stuff like it's, it's yeah, it's weird. But you're right. Like a lot of these sightings are of the same creature, and that's what's that's one of the things about it that's very unusual. I mean, even in in Elkhorn, we were constantly coming back to the same sort of color and hair hair pattern the way the the way the hair grew on it the way the eye shine was the color Mm -hmm. of the eye shine it all sounds like they're describing the same thing over and over yeah and it's been described eating something along the side of the road several times i know i saw at least two encounters in your film that um, Mm -hmm. that was mentioned yeah and and we left one of there's a big one that that isn't in our film but hopefully eventually if we can do some sort of follow-up we can get to you but there's there's all sorts of these roadkill eating stories yeah yeah it's it's interesting stuff well hey seth i've kept you on here long enough um tell everybody where they can get their own copy of uh, bray road beast um dvds are available through shop.smalltownmonsters.com and uh the movie will be streaming on vimeo on demand Amazon and Viddy Space. So it's actually, if you're hearing this uh, Friday, it's already out on Friday. Awesome. And I, I highly suggest everybody go check it out. And not only this film, but but go check out all Seth's, I'm sorry, Small Town Monsters, um, <laughs> other films. I, I don't want to be as guilty as the other folks. Um, go check them all out. I, I tell you what, each time I think I have a favorite, a new one comes out, and now I'm, I'm forced to make Sophie's Choice, basically. Um mm-hmm. They're they're brilliant, and if you're interested in this, and if you're not, why are you listening to the show? But uh, if this is something that interests you, I guarantee you, you're going to have a great time. The production value is high, uh, the information's like spot on, and it's entertaining. So I mean, what else can you ask for? It's cool. uh, it's definitely a, a a must see. 
So I want to thank you uh, so much, Seth, for taking an hour and 20 minutes out of your day to uh, to sit down and, and talk to me um, and, and the fine folks out there. So uh, thank you again for, for coming out. And if you have any last words or, or anything you want last to plug, words. now's your chance. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, just just uh, watch the movie, support it, tell your friends. If you like the movie, feel free to review it on Amazon and uh Keep an eye out for Terror in the Skies on the Trail of Bigfoot and uh, Momo coming out in oh, 2019. Momo. And if you if you back Kickstarters, the Kickstarter for Terror in the Skies and Momo launches on February 7th. And I, I, I I'll, I'll be completely transparent. I haven't backed the, the Kickstarter yet, and I don't know why. Mm-hmm. I just haven't done it, but I'm going to mm-hmm. from now on. Uh, and I highly recommend everybody else, you know, at least look into it. Uh, at, at least to get your name in the credits, which is pretty, is pretty cool. Um, so you know, check out the uh, the Kickstarter. I'll be sharing that on all our social media when that when that launches. So uh, just keep an eye out for that. Uh, thank you again, Seth. I truly appreciate it. Cool. Thanks, man. And that's going to do it for tonight's program. I want to thank Seth Breedlove for taking the time to talk with us this evening. And I should add that if you're a Patreon subscriber, I will have the full interview posted there by the end of the weekend so you'll be able to uh, hear his insight on a few strange happenings on the set of The Bray Road Beast. I also want to thank Addie Lloyd and Warren Pond Abbott for their contributions on this and every episode of Monsters Among Us. Monsters Among Us is written and produced by me, Derek Hayes. All audio used in this program is done so under the protection of fair use. And music from this episode was provided by Coag Music and Nature World 1986. Thank you all for listening, and until next week. There once was a dad who set out on a great quest to find the perfect Coke flavors at his family's request. So he went into a local store and grabbed the Coke Cherry Vanilla, Coke Cherry, and more. At dinner, they sipped Coke flavors and rejoiced. (laughs) For everyone made their own delicious choice. Coca-Cola flavors. Unbelievably delicious. With so many delicious Coca-Cola flavors and Coca-Cola Zero Sugar flavors options to choose from, you'll have to taste them all. The best in internet and entertainment is here, and it's all powered by Xfinity for one unbelievable value. Introducing breakthrough Wi-Fi speed, now faster than a gig. That's enough to handle every device in the house and then some. And with X1, you get access to live TV and top streaming apps. Upgrade today with Xfinity. Check out our internet and TV offers. And now through March 15th, ask how to get a free upgrade to gig speed for a year. Now 20% faster. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Gig offer limited to standard plus more with two-year agreement and compatible X5 gateway.